All right, we are back. The Crave Show with J. Russ, Chris, and we got a special guest this week, Justin Wageman. Thanks for joining us this week, Justin. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks man. for having me. Really How appreciate it, guys. Doing good? Yeah, yeah, yeah doing great. Yeah. J. Russ, how was your week, man? Uh, it's been good. We were, we were in Scottish Chicago for uh, a week after the World Cup, and uh, Nationals is coming up. We, we have potentially half a day of training tomorrow, and then Saturday we travel to Rayford for uh, U.S. Nationals, and our uh, VFS starts on the 11th, I think, 11th through 14th. And then uh, some local, a local couple, I might have said this last week, I can't remember, but a local couple asked me to join them on a belly team. Um, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah. So, so have y'all uh, have y'all done had a chance to do some practice round practice stuff? No, not at all. No. <laughs> no. Uh, why, would why would you do that? What will we need um, that for? I mean, doesn't that blow the whole idea of a pickup team? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hey, well, real quick, before we get going, I wanted to give a shout out or a plug. Um, I, I, this guy reached out to me, well, reached out to Crave, and he is developing an app for skydivers. And I was really, I'm really impressed with what he's doing. So I was like, dude, I want to say something about this on the podcast. I forgot to mention it last week. So I want to say something now. It's called Skydiver Pal. It's a really cool app. Um, he's, they're still working on it. They've been developing been working on it for a couple of years. I think they're, they're really working hard to make it a really cool app to do a lot of different stuff. Um, so skydiver pal, I just want anybody, if you have a chance, go check it out. You can sign up and create an account for free. It won't cost you anything. You can start using the app and he would love to get your feedback. He really wants to make this a valuable, helpful tool for skydivers. It's got a lot of different features on it. Um, so anybody who's listening, if you can, please go create an account. This is not like he's not paying us or anything. I just want to help this guy out. He's trying to do something really good for the community. And I think it'd be awesome if we can give him some feedback, some guidance, some direction on, hey, this is, we like this feature. We don't like this. This works. This doesn't work. Whatever. He wants it. Uh, he w took me through a demo like online, walked me through the whole thing. And I gave him some real direct feedback right there. And I was kind of like, sorry, man, you know, like trying to be like kind of ginger. And he's like, no, dude, give it to me. Like lay it on me. This is the only way I can make it better is if you just honestly, truthfully tell me what's wrong with it. So, um, what generally, he's a what really does it cool do? guy. I think, like what's, what does the app do? What, what generally, so what, what he's trying to get it to do is, um, basically, um, number one, a, well, I'm not going to say number one, cause I don't know if it got him organized, but. Um, like a logbook is part of it. So tracking jumps, but also tracking what you do on those jumps and then able to categorize and um, catalog those jumps so you can see them easily. It's got um, like other features for, um, for like learning and training. He's trying to develop and input um, maybe even some training modules, maybe even going to um, try to connect some tutorials and stuff like that with it. Um, he's got like features where you can connect with other people. Um, he's developed all sorts of stuff. So just go in there and, and play around, figure out. And some of the stuff, I think some of the features maybe aren't going to be that useful. Like some, some like 
chat and blog features and we can share like different stuff that I think maybe is going to get in the way of um, features that we really would use in the skydiving community. So that's why I think it would be really helpful to, for people to just get in there and play around with it, mess around with it and see if it really is worthwhile or not. You know, I actually stumbled upon it, downloaded it and uh, took a look. Um, really? You've seen it back. already? Yeah. I don't know how I came upon it. I think it was through some of the awards that are given to those. There's an award, right? That's given to some innovations, maybe in technology or something. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So um, I thought it was good. Like it's a lot of functions and it's great to hear that he's continuing to develop it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. Ask everybody to go check it out. Skydiver Pal. Take a look. Um, so I don't know if I should put the cart before the horse. So I was I was going to ask Justin just to sort of introduce himself and uh, and give a little background info before maybe I launch into the, the story behind getting Justin on the show. Yeah, okay. go for it. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so I've got um, the professional side of what I do, which is um, professor at, in the School of Education at North Dakota State University. And I've been in that role for a number of years, um, but I started skydiving about, I think it was about 10 years ago. And uh, we did a scrambles on, after I had just become licensed, just a fun scrambles at a local, at our club. And uh, that hooked me into competition. And so the rest is history, as they say, and just um, had an intermediate four-way team and then went to, moved over to video and went to that and just trying to climb and had the most amazing experience being on SDC Rhythm XP uh, that culminated in uh, Worlds at Russia, which, wow, I mean, considering what's going on over there, uh, that was that was an amazing experience and a privilege. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Just a little professional and skydiving related stuff. And what do you what do you teach? Did you did you say that? And I missed it. Yeah, I didn't say it. Um, so I teach courses in educational psychology and the science mm -hmm. of learning. Um, um, my doctorate is in uh, teaching and learning. And so okay. I focus on pedagogy, which is teaching, focus on learning, uh, and just, you know, related topics to that, including the one tonight. Yeah, that, that's the one. <laughs> I'm really, so hold on, wait, you said pedagogy. I've heard that word before. And you you said teaching is that what does that word mean yeah there's synonyms essentially pedagogy it's is just uh, like the theory teaching. of teaching in a sense mm -hmm. yeah okay. exactly yeah how did you get how did you end up teaching like why are you how did you get interested in that like how did that yeah come so well i went to school as an undergraduate for um like mass communications you know and marketing and all of that and then um i had taken some spanish courses um, when I was in high school and I needed to do, you know, the gen ed thing, you know, you have those general education requirements or the liberal arts that's part of an undergraduate four-year degree. So I took, took, uh, I knew it would be an easy A. So I took some <laughs> Spanish courses and that changed my whole career and focus and direction. I How? What eventually do you mean? switched over to being a Spanish major and okay. then I added English as a foreign language. And then I went to Spain and lived there and taught, and uh, had an amazing experience in Spain. Um, but you can't continue, you have to have, uh, you know, like retraining, right? You professional development credits as an educator. So that led me to a master's degree. And then that 
I loved it so much when I went back to school to graduate school that I was like, I'm resigning. I'm going full time into academia. So I went on for the PhD and got that. And then, yeah, um, been working in higher ed. Okay. So there, there was a few questions in there that I have to ask. Number one, <laughs> why did, why did you think Spanish was going to be an easy A? Why was that an easy A for you? Do you... Uh, because I had taken a couple years in high school and, um, and did well. And so I thought, you know, it would be an, an easy A if I, if I mm -hmm. take that beginning one-on-one Spanish in college. Okay. It was, and, it was really. And then why did it, you said that, that completely changed your trajectory. Why? What do you mean? What, what yeah. happened? So I think what happened was just my own personal experiences. I started to see differences in the courses that I was taking, right? I had that wonderful experience with Spanish. And that professor or those professors in that department. And then I was comparing that to the coursework that I was taking in this mass communication area. And it was just night and day. And I just really, really enjoyed the Spanish. Plus, um, many of the Spanish profs were natives. Mm. And I hadn't had a native speaker before. Mm. And I was just, I was just enthralled. I was just so curious about Spanish speaking countries and the culture. And I just, I just kept pursuing it. Yeah. Um, so what about what, what years would that have been or what year when you took that first Spanish course, do you remember what, what year would that have been? Oh yeah, that was uh late eighties. Okay. So you said they were just, so, the Spanish course was just so different from the mass comm courses. Do you remember, are you able to articulate and maybe even say like, what were some of those differences? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it relates to a lot of things that I advocate right now with coaching or with, with learning or with teaching. And that is, there's an element of fun that has to be a part of it. Hmm. And in those Spanish courses, those Spanish profs um, created, whether it was games or activities, role plays, simulations, that is what we call gameplay now, especially in sports. So, you know, like you can, so I was in the tunnel, Jabos, and I were talking about that prior to, uh, to our, um, to beginning tonight and you can drill, 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 drill all day long. But if you never get to actually play the game, um, for a lot of people, it's, it's just not very motivating. That's interesting. Yeah. You just made me yeah. think of, of a, a memory. Sorry, go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. What, what? No, 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 that's it. And that's what, when I was at the, at the tunnel, I actually had great conversations with some of the coaches about the need for gameplay. Hmm. how you put everything together. You can dri dribble a basketball all day long, but if you don't play a game, okay. I mean, how, yeah. How what's the point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The memory, the memory that it, it like, boom, just came right to me was, uh, when I first started working at iFly as an instructor. And so I was going through FITP, the, you know, the flight instructor training program and it, I don't know, let's, let's just say it was the third day. I have no idea, you know, and I wasn't a very good flyer. I mean, I had been skydiving for a few years. I could barely do some stuff on my belly, but I wasn't a good flyer. So besides learning all the instructor stuff, I was learning some basic flight skills too. And I remember this one day in the tunnel, it was me and another guy got hired at the same time. We were both basically greenhorns. We both pretty much knew nothing. I mean, I had you know, 50 or 75, hundred jumps under my belt. He had, had never jumped, but still we we're basically the same. 
and our um, lead instructor, he was teaching us how to go from being on the net on our back, like laying on the net to pop up to our feet, to a standing position. So from our back on the net to stand up. And he was teaching us how to do that, obviously without launching forward and smashing the glass in control, all the similar stuff. And so we were doing that. We were drilling, drilling, drilling over and over and over. And then we stopped and he said, okay, we're going to play a game. And he said, what you do is you're going to start over here on the side of the tunnel. You're going to pop up and go across and touch the glass on the other side. And we want to see who can do it the fastest. <laughs> nice. Dude, all of a sudden it was like, it Game com- on. <laughs> dude, it completely changed. I don't know. It was so like, I, I remember it. I'm like, I think back to that day, it, it was so different. It was so significant for me that I realized in the moment, I was like, wow, that had a huge impact on me. Why did that, why did that affect my ability to try this skill? And even it affected my ability to learn it and do it correctly. Because then all of a sudden I was looking at my friend who was trying to do the same thing. And I was now I was in, I was in a different critical space, like about how sure. I looked at what he was doing how he's doing it, why I was taking him so long. And I was like, okay, he's doing it that way. And it's slow. I can do it this way. I can change it. I can fix it. Man, it was so cool. And I'm not saying like, I'm like some great flyer or something. It was just that mindset switched for me. Right on. Yeah. So if I could, Chris, so I went through FITP in 2005 and we played the same game, except there, it was just a slight variation of popping up off our back, touching the, the, the trainer stood in the middle. We okay. went on either side, touched the glass, went back and touched the other side, and then came and high-fived him. Okay. And so it, it involved a little more complexity as far as like turns. and But yeah. but then they kept turning the wind speed down, 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 down. Okay. So it was even harder to get up off the net on your back and made it even more difficult. And in that moment, I'm kind of dating myself here, but in that moment, I got out and I thought, we just totally did Mr. Miyagi from the karate kid with like wax on wax off. And then like he put it into real world, like, (laughs) and he was blocking all the punches stuff. And and I was like, that's what we just did. Then we've been doing these stupid drills for, for a day. And now we just put it into practice. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, real world application of what Justin is saying. Yeah. Gameplay. Yeah. So besides the, besides the real world application to me, there was something about the competition that made a difference as well. Is that, Yeah, there's an element to it. Um, Studies have suggested, though, that competition can actually be a negative for Hmm. for some people, you know? Okay. Um, And uh, so friendly competition, sure. But uh, it's really about taking the skills that have been broken down, right? Like you've really defined what those individual pieces are, if you will. And then it's putting them all together. And, and being able to do something that's fun. And we all sort of are motivated by differences of what that means. But the idea is that you're not just discreetly, you know, just continually doing these small things, but that you put it all together to do the bigger piece. That's mm. what's motivating to a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, okay. So I want to, not pause, but real quick, J Russ, I yeah. want to give a chance for you to, cause we've been talking about having Justin join us yeah. for an episode for quite a while. And so I'm really happy that he's finally, we finally made it work out. Me too. And I, so, what, 
<laughs> I want to, so- I want to, I want you to kind of tell everybody listening, the audience, why yeah. have we wanted Justin on? If, if they haven't heard, some people have yeah. heard, you know, previous episodes, so they've heard us talking about him. Um, all good things, all good things. <laughs> no, no, for sure. But, so, uh, yeah, this, there's ahead. a little bit of background and Justin, you're going to laugh because I, I did the, uh, Skydive radio podcast last night with, uh, Steven Jeanette. Oh, all right. I, I told him that I was coming on here. Ah. I told him you were coming on here. Nice. And Steve and I got back into uh, I love I love Steve it. and I got back into a little bit of that conversation and Jeanette's like rolling her eyes though, you know, because we went over it ad nauseum the first time. Uh so the 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 genesis of all this, I think, at at least uh in my mind, was I don't know how many years ago now, four or five years ago, we had an angle fly incident at Sky of Chicago. And I I may have talked about it on the show already. Um, but, and I thought about showing the video on this episode, but I decided against it, um, just kind of to keep in, in the idea that we're going to learn what's more effective and, and I don't want to potentially show the video if what we're going to learn is that it's not as effective. But, um, in this incident, we had, a um, one of the ninja angle groups that, uh, went out and they, there were some very good flyers in the group. Um, they, they did a little bit of head down. Um, they switched to a head up orientation and continued for a few seconds. They rotated back to head down. And then, um, one of the flyers got to the point where his audible went off and none of the other flyers had heard theirs yet. And so, uh, this flyer, there, there are three really fundamental rules that I think of in, in angle flying. One of them is to respect the center line. One of them is to hold your line. And the other is to have a progressive break off, meaning that you don't just go all gas and no rudder right off the bat, but you clear your airspace, you you turn to your radial, and only then do you begin to change speed and angle relative to the, the group, similar to like changing lanes on the highway that you wouldn't just jerk the wheel and go over into the lane because you felt like it. You would look first and you would make sure your space is clear. And then if you had to accelerate or decelerate, you would do so, but only after you've cleared the space. So at breakoff for this guy, um, he crosses the center line without looking and just goes full power um, out, changing speed and angle relative to the other maybe five or six people in the group. Um, and the there's a guy on the outside of, of the other side who is still charging towards the leader because his ditter has not gone off yet. And um, they end up colliding. And... Uh, the flyer who made the mistake took the the worst of it, which if I'm going to make a mistake and it's going to hurt somebody, I'd rather be me than somebody else. So I think that was probably what he would have preferred. But the back of his head went into the front of the leg of the guy that was still going forward and uh, it knocked him unconscious. The <clears throat> The guy that got hit in the back of the head, the guy that's making the mistake got knocked unconscious. So in the video, it's from two different angles. Uh, there's the, the video from the leader that I have, and then the video from the flyer that was struck, uh, and from the video of the flyer that was struck, um, you see the impact, you see him coming, but you don't even, I know the impact is coming and it happens so fast that it doesn't really register that he's breaking off until just before he hits the guy. Um, and you see him tumbling and this flyer is now of course out of the jump and he deploys and, um, he's kind of stowing his slider and he looks down and the guy's still tumbling in free fall. 
and eventually you see uh, his the orange of his reserve pop open as his AAD fires, and he opens with a clean opening. But now he, um, they were kind of southeast of the center point of the drop zone, kind of over the road that you drive into Chicago, Chicago, and his canopy is flying directly east towards the river. And um, so he does end up splashing down in the river. And it was sort of a culmination of things that happened that saved his life. Um, my, actually, my wife was driving out to fill up our water bottles at that moment and looked up and saw somebody slumped in the harness under a reserve, stops the car, calls manifest, Hey, there's somebody unconscious going towards the river. They get a boat in the water, like instantly, and they get down to him. He doesn't go over the dam. He doesn't, I mean, I don't even think he got to the safety line. Um, but if he had gone over the dam in his canopy, that would have been a rough day. Um, he didn't drown. Another positive, like his, his uh, he's, uh, he was kind of semi-conscious when they got to him. So they pull him out of the water. He's a Polish guy. Um, he was only able to speak Polish for a little while, even though he knew he was in America. When he got back to the drop zone, he had kind of gotten out of his gear. And I went to speak to him because we had been friends for years. And uh, he started speaking to me in Polish. And I had to stop him and say, you know, I, I, hey, I, we've got to speak English. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, and he spoke a little bit in English and he lapsed back into Polish. Um, clearly some head trauma. Um, so after that incident, um, Sharon, who uh, is one of the educators from the Fly for Life crew, as far as um, developing their program for leadership of angle jumps, requested the video, and I did give it to her. Um, and it was, in my opinion, it, it I had shown it to the people who wanted to be certified for leading at Scott of Chicago. Hey, it's not for nothing that we tell you that these are the basic rules of angle flying and there are consequences or can be potentially consequences if you if you don't pay attention to these and it seemed like such a good video in my mind because so many things had gone wrong and he didn't die and it, i mean if he had died then just out of respect i don't think it was something that we would have shown um but the fact that he survived and he made a full recovery everybody made a full recovery then it seems like a potential learning tool and so this came up um between me and Steve, uh, Justin's uh, former teammate, Steve Lefkowitz, who was uh, a founding member of Rhythm. And Steve had had a discussion with Justin. And um, in that discussion, it had been sort of uh, thrown out there that that showing, if I'm getting this right, Justin, you can correct me at any time now because I'm out, yeah, of my, yeah. out of my element here. But um, showing a, a video that, potentially shows people doing the wrong thing is not not effective as a learning tool um and it is much more effective to show videos of people doing the right thing and to reinforce correct behavior rather than showing like horror videos um about what could go wrong and uh so steve and i got into a lengthy discussion about that <laughs> i think um both of our wives were ready to punch us in the nose after, after a while. Cause it just went on and on for days. Um, and I like a dog with a bone, I wouldn't let it go because I, I really like the teaching aspect or what I thought was the teaching aspect of that video. And Steve threw out one of his favorite quotes um, 
at me, which is not normally headed in my direction, but at this point might have been salient uh, of, you know what Trump's science? More science and not your feelings. <laughs> That's really good. And, uh, which is very true. And so um, in the interim, I mean, this has been coming for years. Uh, I've talked to a few people who are on the educational side of, of skydiving and, and trying to teach people to do things the right way. And one of them I recently was in, uh, Sharon was at the World Cup in uh, in Norway and we were staying at the same place that she was. So I got to hang out with her and Shannon for a while and Arya. Um, and uh, we did discuss this exact thing because she still does use the video. And um, and I, and then Andy Malchiotti, who I, Justin, I'm not sure if you're gonna be aware of who Andy is, but he's a- uh, I do know okay. who he is. I haven't yeah. met him before, but I know um, he is a, uh, I would say, a, a, a super smart guy, very, um, very thoughtful and um, thorough in his uh, methodologies. And so I asked both of them and, and in the best way that I could sort of gave them a synopsis of all of this very similar story. And both of them had different ideas about why the video might still be effective. And so part of what I wanted today was discuss some of the nuance that potentially surrounds this issue of, um, and I, I'll tell you, I'll share with you guys what, what they had to say about it. Um, but, uh, I wanted to, I guess the start of the conversation for me, Justin, was to see if, if I was correct, that per potentially there was a difference between parking a car that someone crashed drunk driving next to a high school and saying, Hey, don't drunk drive. And then in a group of interested people in the subject matter, showing that video of potential negative consequences as a reinforcement of, of what's important to teach, uh, in your leadership stuff. And so again, just a little bit of nuance about like, are there differences to the way that that you feel about this topic? Yeah, so um, I don't think there are differences, but I think it's more about what you do with that video. And um, I, you know, I never, we were training and I remember being brought into the conversation. I think we were in Sebastian at the time. And I remember being in the hangar with you and Steve and, and you know, and I, and we were talking. Um, and I don't know that I've actually seen what you do with the video either. Um, you may you may have said some things in the past, but I think it it really depends on what you do with that video. So if you're looking for the shock and awe, if you're using a graphic video to to simply evoke fear, that's one thing. But I. Um, I'd like to suggest that there are some things that you could do or anybody could do. So certainly not just, you know, UJ Russ are sort of pointing the finger at you, but I really think that there are things to make it more effective, um, that do involve showing the video, but I feel like, um, in skydiving, we're up against some limitations based on the studies that have been done. And so I think it might be helpful just to get a sense of some context here. Um, when you in the professional literature, when you talk about the use of, of, of something graphic to evoke fear, we call that fear appeal. 
or fear arousal. Uh, and it's, it is, the first point I want to make is it's polarizing. Like this is this issue of whether or not using, you know, a pervasive, uh, persuasive uh, message to try to evoke fear to, by emphasizing the potential danger and harm that could come to a person, if you don't follow whatever is recommended, has been going on for six, over six decades. So over 60 years of research, and it's polarizing. The, there are so many researchers that are confident that, yes, it works, and others that are saying, no, it doesn't. And some of the last uh, latest research is from 2015, so already eight years old, where they've done what are called meta-analyses, uh, meta-analyses, which are where you combine the results from multiple studies to try to look for patterns or trends to try to see, you know, um, we're more confident when we can do that about what we find than an individual study. But I mean, just you look, I, I looked at the literature just a, a while back and, and, and we're still getting studies that are, yes, it's effective. No, it isn't effective or it's actually negative not to do it. So you get, you still get something that is, that is all over the place. I think my recommendation would be to be sure to have certain elements or aspects that are part of, of using the video. And I'd like to frame it by saying, think about message, the message you're communicating, the behavior that you're recommending and the audience that you are trying to reach. And, and I think if we look at those three things, there's certain pieces of those that I think um, we can take and we can really put to uh, our, you know, have uh, to be more effective. And I think that in those pieces, we'll see that we have some limitations as well. And um, I'm more than happy to share some of those with you. Yeah, please, please go. yeah I want to hear. Okay, so just, I just want to repeat those three things. The message, the, yeah. behavior, the behavior you want. Yes. Or that you're trying to teach or coach to. And then the audience. The audience. Okay. So the audience could just be that, like an audience actually listening or the person that you're coaching or teaching or training. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we could start with the message. Let's start with the message. And there there are three things about the message that if you do these things, um, some of the latest studies have shown that along with the the graphic video or audio or whatever you also are presenting can be more effective. Um, One of those is efficacy. So efficacy, uh, both self-efficacy or response efficacy. So what what I mean by this is when you um, are communicating something or you're presenting something, you have a statement in there or your message in there is that is that of assurance. You're assuring the people who are listening to you that they are capable of doing whatever the recommended actions are and or performing those things will result in desirable consequences. And I think emphasizing that is really, really important because when people are presented with a threat, they're presented with that video, there's a lot of vulnerability that leads them to evaluate whether or not they should adopt whatever those recommendations are that's going to protect them from the negative consequences. So as long as you have in that message that you are assuring them 
that you know that that you know first of all you're you're confident that they're capable of performing whatever they need to do to avoid the negative as well as that performing this will result in good things not bad things um i think that's that's that efficacy statement or statements go a long way along with that video um and so jeros you know just on that point alone the tough part i think is that do you know if everybody who is watching that video can perform whatever's recommended by you well i i think that um they're ninjas I, I think i heard you say for I, that i mean on that jump they were ninjas but but i think it's i think that um what i was trying to get across i mean anybody that goes on a movement jump um should be able to do those three things okay not cross the center line yep. hold your line yep and have a progressive break off and even if your progressive break off is crap in terms of like your technique because you're brand new at it and somebody else's who's in the ninja group is really powerful because they're because they're good at it and they've had lots of practice the fundamental elements of it can can be learned and and stay consistent across your career even if even if the knowledge base and the skill set that you have improve those fundamental rules will stay consistent and and learning them from the very beginning is absolutely vital in in my opinion and, and when, so assurance of, that the listeners are capable of doing the correct thing i think Yes, they they are capable of doing it to varying degrees. Of course, there's there's always different skill sets. And then the second part of that, performing it will result in good things. I I would add that the that the video is potentially saying yes, it it will result in in the good thing that you want, which is surviving the skydive and having a safe break off, <laughs> and it will also <laughs> it will also uh, avoid the bad thing. Right. The, the thing that you're trying really to avoid. I mean, there's no great time for a, a free fall collision, but break off is a tough time to have one. Um, and and so in addition to the good thing, I would say avoidance of the bad thing would also be included in there, which in yeah. itself is a good thing. Um, yeah. So I so that I, those two things are in your message then. Right. I think like, so. Yeah. 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 Yep. Exactly. Justin, um, if you if you were going to phrase that yourself without hearing from what JRS just said, how would you have phrased the good thing that comes from, how would you phrase that good thing? You know what I mean? Like when he's saying, don't cross the center line, maintain your lane and progressive break off. Yeah. You know safe skydive. Like, yeah. Desirable oh. would be having a safe skydive. Just that simple. It doesn't have to be a yeah, difficult right message. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what I'm I'm proposing though, is it's more than just, Look at this video and because i have to say i have been part of camps where um, a graphic video has been shown near miss or some accident or something um thankfully not death uh and studies have shown that people want to see crashes but they don't want to see death really interesting yeah. mm -hmm. uh but i have been part of other camps and other you know other well-known people who who do show videos that where there isn't really much that's said about it other than this is what can happen. Mm. But what I'm suggesting to you is an efficacy message that says, that assures mm. people that by doing this, you're going to have a safe skydive. 
by, you know what I mean? As opposed to focusing on, again, um, something else or just showing it for the shock and awe effect. So related to this shock and awe thing, and I, I think Andy, Andy's quote, or I, I made him repeat it and I tried to write it down as quick as I could. It, it'll be paraphrasing for sure. Um, what he felt, uh, without having seen the video himself, cause I didn't have a copy of it at the time. Um, and, and I am just going to read this because it, it is as close as I can get to his exact words. All the affirmatives and positive examples in the world don't allow them to connect all the positive and negative possibilities. Uh, so in both positive and negative, you can't rely on their brain to connect all those things, um, that they, that we can get them to connect through video, uh, and, uh, negative possibilities need to be understood in concrete terms. Um, and, and so I, I did find that somewhat compelling, of, of, of just, a um, a very tangible way to see that the, Hey, these are the three basic rules that we talk about and all three of them are violated in this moment. And then there's this very real world outcome that, uh, you can't count on like the big blue sky to save your life. You, you know, he, he made very serious mistakes and, and yet didn't die. Um, and so it is a concrete example of, of these learning points that can otherwise potentially be, I mean, intangible is the word that comes to mind, but, but, um, ineffable or, or, or something that like, it's, it's just not concrete to use Andy's word. Um, and so I, I did, I, I mean, I wrote it down because when he said it, I was like, oh man, that's brilliant. I, I, I need to be able to repeat this on the, uh, on the podcast when we talk about it. So I, I guess, Justin, do you, do you agree with that? You're, you're nodding your head a lot. I am nodding. Yeah. Like I, I, I do get it. I, you know, there's a lot of things, um, you know, um, where people are always shown, I just showing the negative is, is about evoking a feeling and a, a motivation, creating, creating an emotion and a feeling. And I don't know if it's as much as like examples, um, although it could be, it's more about um, evoking fear. And a problem with this is we don't know how much fear. A lot of the studies that have been done on this uh, don't really ask, ask participants about the nature of their fear. What we know is the content itself can be like low or moderate or high de depiction of fear. Um, that content is what evokes then um, the response, but we don't take time to really look at the subjective fear of the participants. If that makes sense, there's a difference yeah. there. And, and so I think what, what works here is just the content, whatever the example might be that evokes that fear to say, this is the undesirable consequence. This is the negative. And, um, rather than, you know, because it's going to be impossible to try to find every possible negative, um, you know, consequence, right? But we and do know what you just said. You delineated three things that are positively do these three things and you're going to have a safe skydive. Um, but it is possible that there are 
countless negative things that are negative consequences for for doing whatever. Um, and, and so the tendency is to focus on the positive rather than the negative. Do, do you think that, I mean, there must be, I, I guess I'm, I'm about to answer my own question, but we, you know, your part of, of rhythm was to video the team. And so countless hours of your video were reviewed um, right. for both positive and negative things that came out of those jumps. Yep. Um, and there were learning points in both, of course, uh, you know, this caused this, you know, this mistake caused this cascade of events and we'd like to avoid that. And that started with this. And so it, it, it works to highlight it. So is the absence of fear, the, the, the part that makes that worthwhile? Um, That's exactly that no what I was going to ask. Yeah, well, um, I think so. I mean, I think it's a little different, like it's about feedback. Um, but even in those videos that that we watched as a team or that I like you mentioned all the videos, uh, it wasn't a focus on the negative. It was a focus on the instructional aspects of it. So what to do next to improve. And it's less about, mm. you know, focus on the negative. In fact, um, some of the most uh, well, you know, renowned coaches in the world when they've analyzed statistically the feedback that they give, I would say like three fourths of it, 75% is, is focus. It's, it's sort of like, yeah, that negative happened, but that, but, but let me tell you what you need to do next to improve. Hmm. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I so think what, like, what uh, would the... is it John Wooden, the, the basketball coach? Yeah. 75% of his feedback to players when it was analyzed statistically was instruction. Here's what you do next to improve because there's nothing more powerful as a motivator than to see yourself getting better over time. Right. And that feedback about the next step to take in a scaffolding process is what's so incredibly effective. And I think about 7% was focused on negative things hmm. in the feedback that he gave. To his players. I, negative, I what... negative. <clears throat> when you say negative, you mean him saying, don't do this, or you did yeah, this wrong, exactly. or something like mm. that. Yeah, don't do that. <clears throat> I wonder if we could compare him with Bobby Knight <laughs> <laughs> and what that would look like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and there are personality styles to coaches, and Bobby Knight would be an example of that. Make all the, I'm going to make all the decisions. I'm going to, you know, tell you what to do for everything, mm -hmm. right? That was sort of, we think a dictator or like authoritative or authoritarian mm -hmm. versus somebody who's more laissez-faire, uh, you know, doesn't do much versus that balance in the middle that is more like uh, cooperative, we call it, where, you know, there's input that's from the participants and uh, in decision making that occurs. So really, I mean, th this is to do with coaching and instruction in general, not just dealing with dangerous situations or things that you shouldn't do. Right. I mean, like the thing, what you're talking about, the instructional positive instructional uh, method or whatever is just coaching in general, instructing, helping people improve at a skill. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I think there's some overlap though. Right. Like I, I think that, um, a, a, less of a focus on the negative, more focus on the positive is, is one message certainly that we're, we're advocating. Um, hmm. 
And would that essentially be the thesis statement for, for this, this piece of the subject matter? I mean, like focus more on positive than negative. Is that the thesis? I think so. But you know, again, this issue of, of sharing a graphic video or showing something that is a negative consequence has its place. And so I, I'm all about saying, um, it's a polarizing issue. There's, there's definitely experts on both sides of the aisle. Um, so what can we do to make, you know, this graphic content, um, more effective. And one of them, as we start out saying was that efficacy message, that message by the presenter, by, by J Russ, who's an expert to say, who's a professional to say, um, if you do these things and these are the things, um, I am telling you, you're going to have a safe skydive. Um, another one is to stress susceptibility and severity. So susceptibility means that um, this can happen to you. This absolutely can happen to you. And again, um, I, I did mention earlier, like I haven't seen J Russ, what you do with the video. It would be really, it'd be great to be a part of the, you know, the presentation and, and to experience it. But part of the message, this is another aspect of the message is um, really communicating that you are at risk, a personal risk for the negative things that, that I'm sharing with you. That's the susceptibility piece. The other term that's used in the research is severity, which, which obviously, I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? This is, this is really severe. I mean, unconscious yeah. or partially conscious landing in under your reserve in the river. Um, yeah. I mean, just, so part of your message is if you do these things, um, the self-response uh, efficacy is that if you do these things, you're going to have a safe skydive. And then the emphasis on the susceptibility that, and the severity of these consequences. Yeah. And the tough part here, Jairus and, and Chris, is that we don't have statistics. A lot of times in other areas, especially with health, right? Cancer, for one, um, you, you get um, campaigns or messages that talk about um, the statistics, like, um, you know, uh, certain percentage, 90% are going to die of this. And, uh, over the course of a lifetime, maybe, you know, um, a certain percentage are going to actually, you know, get this cancer. And, uh, I don't know that we have the statistics in skydiving next necessarily, but, but it's really interesting to think about. Um, so Sharon's statement. Uh, if, if we can move on to that, I, I also found compelling, but completely different. Um, sorry, I just want to finish. I'm taking notes on your thoughts here. Um, so Sharon's thought was that the, even after I said that it was very possible that the efficacy is low on, on showing these videos and, and having a message get through or st not just get through, but stick with them over the long term. And I think that was that was one of the points that you tried to make originally was like it, there, if there's benefits, they're very fleeting and they, they sort of evaporate over, over the long term. Um, Sharon said that she wanted to continue to show it. So she's shown it to quite a few leaders courses now. I mean, it's been years and, and I don't know how many courses she's done and she didn't offer that number, but I imagine she does two or three courses a year. And, and so maybe as many as 10 or 15 uh, groups of six people or, or so have seen the, this video and 
she said her reasoning for continuing to show it was was whether or not it it benefited over the long term of people retaining that is that it always generated a heck of a lot of conversation and um that uh, as a group they they there would be great discussions that would evolve out of out of showing the video and she found that to be very valuable whether or not the the video accomplished anything other than that was was irrelevant to her so um i mean i know that's kind of ancillary to what we're talking about because it's because it isn't directly the video but but it was a positive outcome that came from it that i i would have to i i, I did actually stop showing the video based on our conversations um and uh, i'm i'm not actually teaching that many leadership classes uh this year because a couple of the people took it over um but based on the conversations that i had with sharon and andy i i might have started again because that did remind me that when i did show it to my groups we talked about it for a while i mean it's and i don't know if it's the evoking of fear or the the um the linking of, of possibility with concrete example um in in the students minds but but it also generated conversation for me and and questions and and uh and i guess that 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 that's another what do you think kind of moment of of what do you think about that thought and and do you agree with the with that statement yeah i mean anecdotally i, I can see how again feelings emotions are evoked and that's just going to create a buzz right like it I think when people see something like that, uh, they have you or the presenter talking about it, but I think, you know, like they want to talk about it. They want to talk about what they just saw. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. It reminds me of this, this notion with research it, that there are so many variables and there really is a lot about this topic that we do not know. You know, we don't know the effect of fear appeal on diverse populations, you know, like age or, um, you know, certain characteristics. We don't, we, there, there's so much that we don't know. And the things that I'm sharing tonight are things that have come up about as a result of these meta-analyses where they have, um, you know, uh, they've conducted research that that is of a very high standard um but is very difficult research and again we just do not know so the things like elf efficacy self-efficacy or response efficacy things like um depicting that susceptibility that people you know you really communicating that this can happen to you and that the severity of it like high de depictions of severity like you could die or you know um, something related. These are things that we know from the research studies that say, including these will increase the effectiveness of showing that graphic or using fear appeal, um, hmm. in your presentation. It'd be really interesting to see how those, <clears throat> that messaging affects different age groups, you know, because yeah. when I was 18, you could tell me this will happen to you all day long and I'm not going <laughs> to believe you. You know, no, I mean, yeah. nothing could happen to me when I was 20 years old. Nothing. I was, yeah. I could do whatever I wanted, yeah. but now I've been hurt so much. I've been jacked up. I've broken things. I've, you know, torn stuff and I've seen other people get really hurt or killed. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff. Now I'm like, 
yeah, that can absolutely happen to me. And, but I'm 45, Hmm. you know, so it's a completely different stage of life the way I, I, so that messaging, it's really, that that would be interesting to me. How does that messaging affect age groups or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I I mean, I, I wonder too, I mean, it's so hard to tell what, what affects people in a positive way or what changes the course of their life. And I'm, and a quote is coming to mind from a friend when I was, when I was going through college, I was, um, I was a psych major and I was, uh, I, I did a, like an internship of, of, uh, counseling teens and I was only 20 years old myself. So just barely out of my teens. And the the guy that did my training mentioned to us like, Hey, this is going to be really difficult. You're, you're going to talk to these kids for a little while and you may never talk to them again. Maybe they come in for a visit with their parents or something. And, but you're going to have, a little interaction with them, it's going to wind you up emotionally and then they're going to disappear from your life and you're not going to know what the outcome was. And you got to look at this as though you are put leaning your shoulder into a boulder at the top of a hill. And like, you have no idea what the pathway is going to be at the bottom of the hill by this tiny nudge that you gave them at the top. And, and so if you look at it that way, you're affecting this positive influence on their life, even though it it's a long way away for the real result and you'll never see it. But, <laughs> but you know, putting your shoulder into them is still a worthwhile endeavor. And so when you just said, what, what would have made a difference when I was 20? And that's very difficult to say, but if you could possibly, you know, you 45 and you've been through all of these things in your life that have led you to a point that's quite different than when you were 20 and and understanding the serious nature of things, how do you condense that experience and give it to a 20 year old? I mean, you can't pack wisdom of 45 and make it into a 20 year old. And the best that maybe you can do is put your shoulder into them with a little bit of what you've learned and hope that, that that sends them on a slightly different trajectory and hopefully a safer trajectory. If, if what we're doing on this show has anything, you know, real world uh, consequences. But I I wonder if like, and again, this is what I feel and it's not science. um, But you know, if, if you can link up a 20 year old mind of, Hey, there are real consequences to what I'm telling you. And they take it slightly easier on their angle jump as a result is, is, and that's very anecdotal, I admit, but, but it's, it's again, the idea of, of how, how, how can you convince people that are sometimes all gas and no rudder that they need to throttle back a little bit. And and there are consequences to these mistakes. Um, that maybe they don't, I mean, Lukash is the person who went through this accident. I don't, I don't think he had considered the possibilities of what he was doing until the moment that he did them. Um, and if there's a way to impart wisdom on people without, without them having to actually go through the experience, <clears throat> that seems worthwhile. So, so Jay Russ, when, um, when you talk about, um, I, it was really great comment about the intangibles, you know, you're, you're putting yourself into somebody, but you may never see the, the results of that. Uh, it reminds me of, of research I've done on burnout. Uh, mm. Your people helping professions are those that burnout um, have the large, uh, greatest amount of burnout because burnout is constructed as a continuum. At any given time, we have a level of burnout, if you will, from low to high. And um, we know constructs such as you know, um, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, that's when you don't want to be around people and lack of personal accomplishment. And so 
uh, professions like nursing, like educators even, um, but definitely like uh, counselors, therapists. Um, yeah, the greater risk for higher levels of burnout because you don't see the, you know, the end result of everything that you're giving and putting into this. And it's true. Like we, we, our target pop populations, like the different age or personality or education, social class, we just don't know. Those are questions that remain for mm -hmm. researchers to try to, you know, our fear appeals differentially effective for those uh, different populations. We don't know, but I, let me share something about what we do know or at least there's a trend or a pattern that we have seen. And that is there's been cultural research that suggests that women tend to be more prevention focused than men. Hmm. And what that tells me right away, in other words, prevention focus in the sense that they avoid negative outcomes. And right away, what that tells me is in skydiving, we're, we're up against uh, that that becomes a really big obstacle, right? Because what's the percentage of women in skydiving? Ten. Like, it's really know, it's low, low, right? Like, and so we are dealing with more men, right? And as we're trying to, you know, because fear appeals is prevention frame messages, and so we are really emphasizing what you should do to avoid the negative, and yet men tend to be more on in the pursuit of positive outcomes as opposed to the avoidance of negative outcomes. Now I just made a really general statement, so please don't hold me to it, but, Canceled. but, but you know, there's always um, variance there, but I'm just saying like the cultural research has really um, has found that women tend to be more prevention focused than men. So you're, you're communicating a message that it's called regular regulatory fit theory or regulatory focus theory, meaning that we are regulated by what fits with our, our, you know, our, our focus. Hmm. And, wow. um, and so uh, those differences alone, um, can, yeah, can be a real obstacle for using, again, fear appeal uh, in, in this situation. Well, that's super interesting, so, just that you could, you could cater the message depending on your audience. Yeah, according to the USPA from in 2020, this is January 1st, 2020, 13% of 13%. the USPA membership was women. Okay, there you go. So, yeah. yeah. Some of the things that That's you guys the audience were, piece that we were talking about earlier of those three, right? Yeah. Message, yeah. behavior, yeah. and audience. There's yeah, the and I want piece. I do want to move to the next one, to the behavior, but but um yeah. on the message, something you guys were saying made me think of like how does personal responsibility, like communicating personal responsibility, it seems to be a piece of that in there somewhere. And I think back to when I was younger, mm -hmm. um, I was always like asking my dad if I could go drive the car like when we were going to the store or going to check on my granddad's cattle or whatever, you know? And so lots of times he would let me drive and this was, you know, I was 13, 12, 13, 14. He'd let me drive. And I can remember a couple of conversations that my dad had with me that really changed my, my mindset about driving without my license. And he said to me one time, and he said this a few different times, and I look back in my life multiple times in different situations, he would say something like this. He would say, look, if you want to drive the truck and go check on the cows, like if you want to do that, you know that you're 13. You know you don't have a license. 
you know, if, if the, if something happens and the cops stop you or whatever, you think about the consequences of what can happen. And he basically said, right or wrong, I, I, I don't care. I'm not trying to like have this conversation about good, bad parenting. What I'm saying is the way it affected me. He said, here's the keys. I'm setting them on the counter. Basically, here they are. You decide for yourself. And you better be ready to deal with the consequences because you're mm -hmm. the one making the choice. You're the one going to, I'm not going to stop you. And if the cops pull you over, I'm not going to vouch for you and try to get you out of trouble. You're going to deal with whatever they say. Oh my goodness, dude. When somebody says that to you, when somebody stops and makes you re think for a second, this is on you. This is your decision, how you're going to fly this angle jump, how you're going to act in the sky with your friends. That's on you. Forget what I'm telling you to do right or wrong. You make your own decisions. You do something stupid and crazy and you jack up one of these people. That is you, brother. Like that personal responsibility when you, sometimes that's all it takes is for somebody to stop and make you think like, oh crap. Yeah, this is my choice because we want to get away from that. We want to, you know, like skirt around and, and do things that we're not supposed to do. And the, the rebel in me wants to go break the rules and go against the flow and all that. Um, and so you feel like it's, oh, it's somebody else. I broke the rule. That was them. You know, I got away with it or whatever. Um, I, I don't know. What, what, what does that fit in somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. These are aspects that again, haven't really been studied. It's really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, it's along the line of the source of the communication as well. So who is it that's making the presentation? Um, is it a personal friend? Is it somebody respected? Is it an expert? Is it somebody that you see as perceive as self-serving or just, you know, doing something to make money? Is it a, uh, you know what, it, like the source of the communication is something that hasn't been studied. It's been understudied as well. Yeah. So um, like, like that would be like the ethos, the ethos of the, of the instructor, of the teacher matters. Mm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I teach in my own courses is that the foundation of teaching and learning is relationships. Mm. It just is the foundation. And a lot of times when there are issues, I, I like to ask about that relationship. What kind of relationship do you have with that student, if you will, or with that? An individual, yeah. It's really interesting. Okay, so there were two other kind of aspects of, I don't know if you said in the meta-analysis you had you came up with three different things. There was the message communicated, there was the behavior recommended, and then the audience reached. Yeah, the the one that we haven't touched on is the 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 recommended behaviors. Okay. And and so basically to make your message or to make your presentation more effective, to make, to make fear appeal more effective, it's there, those, those attempts are more successful when the recommendation is a one-time behavior. Um, what comes to mind with COVID is getting vaccinated. Really? Yeah. Wait, hold on. Say, say that statement again. That have to be repeated over time. And then that puts us again against oh. an obstacle with skydiving because every skydive you have to do this. Does that make sense? Okay, so a single, a single event thing is easier to get. Some, okay, I mean, yeah, that yeah makes it's going to take less effort to do something, sure. right? Than to have to do it many times. You know, like exercising. You can't just do it once. Unfortunately, <laughs> got to keep at it. Got to keep doing it over an extended period of time. And because mm. of that effort, people are more likely to be compliant 
with a single behavior than with something that has to be repeated. Wow. Yeah, that, that makes yeah, sense. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So how do you... So we're up against some things, right? We're up against an audience uh, uh, dynamic, if you will, or, or um, aspect. We're up against, you know, repeated behavior that has to be in place for this, right? Every skydive has to, has to be safe. And, uh, and we're, mm. yeah, so we're up against some things that... Um, are difficult. So are there one things... last thing I want to share with you is the nature of the graphic video or the the nature of what you're showing, right? That that, that in the literature is called graphic. Um, the, the the findings have have shown that you don't have to depict really really graphic stuff. So high high uh, depiction or moderate depiction uh, or low depiction, the moderate can be sufficient. There hmm. seems to be a point of diminishing returns. Um, there's no linear or curvilinear um, effect of this. Hmm. So, so it won't go negative, but it's not going to be more effective if you show something more graphic. Yeah. So yeah. is that saying, like, am I, this is what I thought of, if I'm hearing you correctly, could we possibly, let's say I made, I made a, like a little really simple animated video of stick figures that basically did the same thing as what happens in the video that JRS has, but it's just, it's just stick figures in the sky. We're just showing so they can see crossing the center line. Not, would that hmm. be possibly hmm. have the same effectiveness as the actual video, even though it's not nearly as graphic, it's just stick figures, but it's showing the, the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Or am I misunderstanding would, what you're saying? There's two different, there's reality. And then the, Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. But yeah, I, I wonder if, if in your suggestion, Chris, it would take, like, you're not afraid of stick people hitting other stick people. Yeah. And so does it remove the fear and leave only the message? I, mm. I, I'm not sure. Obviously yeah, so that, what you'd have to do is do check-ins on the people, on the participants regarding the uh, evocation or the, the evoking of that fear and to determine if it's moderate or high or right. just what's happening right there. Mm. But is that what is that what you were saying as far as the graphic nature of it? It doesn't have to be severely graphic. Yeah, it doesn't have to be death, for example. It can be, you know, there's a, it can be moderate. It can be something that isn't extreme. Hmm. Um, because people think that if they show more graphic or more extreme, they're going to evoke a greater response. The message will be more effective. And I'm just, yeah, suggesting that the research doesn't show that. I got you. So to go back real quick, what you're saying about the, um, shoot, I just forgot. Uh, go ahead. Were you going to say something, JRS? I'll think of it. <laughs> yeah, the pin smart. Uh, no, I was going to, we did get a question from uh, Colton in the audience. Um, oh, yeah. He said, go I ahead. just got my AFFI rating. Any advice for me as a new instructor? And that's a, it's a fairly big question. I think this is probably Colton Schilling, who's on the drop zone uh, at Sky Chicago. Um, but could, I guess could be any Colton. Um, as it relates to what we're discussing tonight, um, I don't know if they show, I mean, I would be, and th this actually seems very sensible that you wouldn't show AFF students videos of bad AFF jumps. You would show the, you would show AFF students videos of exactly what you wanted them to do on the skydive, a very good student. Right. And that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, 
no argument whatsoever. You would never show them the wrong thing. Am I, I am so. I answering my For own question? Instructors, don't they show a video of that? Of yes, like they a, do. Yeah. Or something? yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So for this I mean, fear appeal, it permeates our culture, permeates yeah. our society. It's really Chris. Do you have an? Do you have a tandem rating? No. Okay. So I got mine, and I don't take tandems just just so I could work with the military groups that we we like to work with. But in even in that course today, they still show that side spin that resulted in a fatality before uh, effective AADs were in use, um, and they weren't. They were doing tandems uh, drogless. Uh, there was no drogue, or maybe he couldn't get the drogue out. I can't remember. Um, and until only recently, they finally stopped showing uh, videos of tandem instructors hooking in students, and they both get killed. Mm. Um, and uh, and so I didn't have to watch any of those. Um, and if that had been part of the course, I probably would have asked, "Can we just skip that part? Like I, I don't need to see more of that in my life." Um, and I don't need, I don't need to see a video of a tandem person hooking in to understand that it's exactly the same as a, a, a solo skydiver hooking in. And I, I'm, I'm good. I, I got that point. Um, but, uh, but then again, that's, that's kind of back to the point that Chris made that I'm 52 and at, at, at 21,000 skydives, I've seen quite a few things. And, uh, but a tandem instructor that has 500 jumps maybe they haven't do they need to connect those dots of what are the negative possibilities of flying your canopy aggressively close to the ground with the customer um do they need that concrete message if they haven't seen it with their own eyes well i can tell you that the the, the research suggests that it is effective but again with these pieces in place mm -hmm. and we just don't know by age. It's just a variable that unfortunately hasn't been studied, but I can, un I can see how it would make a difference. I just don't know how, I mean, mm -hmm. here's the other thing. We talk about how this content evokes fear, right? But maybe it evokes other feelings. Maybe there's disgust. Maybe there's anger. We, we simply don't have the research to know how that mediates the effectiveness of our approach. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Are so, there... so much more to be seen. Yeah. <clears throat> so just regarding instruction and coaching in general, <clears throat> are there studies that highlight the most effective techniques for coaching and instruction? Oh yeah. I mean, um, some of the things that, you know, first law of pedagogy, take the student from the known to the unknown, finding out as much as you can about them to take them to where they need to be. I mean, big things like chunking, you know, taking blocks of content and breaking it up to, to you create more beginnings and endings. And so you're going to remember, you remember the first things and the last things, right? It's the latency, recency, latency effect. And so by chunking, you, you create more of those for, for memory. Um, I mean, there's, yeah, a lot of things focus a uh, whole part, whole USPA uses whole part, whole. I went through coach. I went through AFFI. Um, and I saw those things in there. Um, I feel like there's some additional things that could be done, you know, to, uh, enhance, uh, the preparation of our next generation of coaches and instructors. But 
um, whole part whole, you know, uh, in the in in the modeling and the practice, but in the in the focus on the positive, um, all of those are just really really great things. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting because a lot some of the not not all but some of the things you're saying, I hear those a couple of those same phrases in in the iFly world, you know, <laughs> in with instructors and and trainers and examiners, you know, teaching one another and teaching customers and stuff like that. And I've been, I've started working at iFly for, you know, five or six years ago, took a little break. Now I'm back over there helping out a little bit, but for the past few years, that's really, I've been so curious, like so interested, like how do I be a good coach? Like how do I help people do better in, in the tunnel or in the sky? And it's weird because sometimes I'll have a student, a person, and I feel like I help them so much. And then sometimes I feel like I didn't do anything for that person. Like mm-hmm. I didn't help them at all. And, and I get the sense that they feel the same way. <laughs> so I'm like, what's, what's wrong with me? Why am I like, how do I be a good coach? And I think there's a, I really think there's a lot of people out there that are coaching and instructing that want to do a good job. And so I think this topic is so interesting and so valuable for all of us to just raise the, to raise the bar of safety, but also of skill and and fun. You know, like how do we be better coaches for one another, encourage and and develop one another? Yeah. The, uh, the, the idea though, is that, um, there's, there are things that you can do as an, as the coach or the instructor, but then there are things that are on the shoulders of that student as well. Mm. And you know, what are the motivations for learning? Well, is there purpose in what that student is doing? Or what is it that, what's the goal? Uh, the philosophy of the coach versus, you know, the, the personality or the style of the student. Um, I, I'll share something. I went out to the, I, I went to a tunnel and um, I spent a considerable amount of time there, uh, three months. And before I went, I wanted to, I wanted, I was curious about my own learning. You know, spend a number of years and and um, time and effort with uh, teaching and learning and the science of teaching and learning, but I wanted to really examine myself. So I put together a study, um, detailed before I went to the tunnel, and I actually moved there for three months, and I logged every single day on the environment, on the people that were around me including the coaches, um, what I was learning, how I felt about it. And I have four, over 40 pages of, of what I called a learning log. And I have purposely, um, that was uh, March through May, and I have purposely not looked at it since then so that I can approach it you know, with some distance and some fresh eyes but I can tell you there are themes in there. There are themes of community, for example, that we simply need to have community to be able to learn. We, mm. The people around us who support us, the people around us who encourage us. Um, there, are, there are themes in there about how um, that line up or align with, with uh, some of the latest research that suggests that there is interleaving, which is to say that um, you don't simply focus on one thing at a time, but to, you, you, you periodically bring in things from the past to interleave that, that teaching for the learning to take place, to be effective. 
in the long term, more, you know, more rather than short term retention, but long term retention, a spaced practice. I went 21 days as an experiment um, to see how far I could get before I couldn't take it any longer. It was any longer. It was 21 days before I almost burnt out, called it quits, threw in the towel and went home. <laughs> um, and then I started to build in rest days. And wow, did the progress soar. Hmm. Wow, did I feel so much better. So there's going to, I'm really excited about this self-study um, to see what themes are in here. It's a, it's a qualitative project that I have. Um, and then, you know, themes about, like, I remember one of the coaches saying, so what are you working on today? And I, um, I told, I told him and, and as I was stating what I was, what I thought, where I thought I was at, he, he, he stopped me and he's like, when, when you get in, he said, I've been doing this long enough. I'll be able to know where you're at. I love that. That was really great. And, and he was spot on. We got in there and it didn't take long and he knew exactly where I was at to be able to take me where he wanted to go, you know? Um, that whole thing of frustration. I use chat GPT to help me with the mental piece. Like I was like, chat GPT is like, help me out. Give me some suggestions on how to be mentally strong with this. Because right now I am not, a, I'm not getting this skill and it is driving me crazy, you know? And um, yeah, so um, I think there's a lot about the science of teaching and learning. So space practice, interleaving, um, um, feedback. And we could spend a lot of time just on that. And community. And community. So when yeah. you were spacing out, when you you went 21 days in a row and then you started building in rest days, what, what yeah. did you find was a good schedule for rest days? Like how many days of practice and then a day of rest or whatever? Yeah. So um, I went from no days of rest to going three days of practice and taking a day off. Okay. And when you, but did I the... also increased the time of the, of those three days. So actually I was ahead of it. <clears throat> I was hmm. doing more, <clears throat> pardon, pardon me. I was doing more in those three days than I was going every single day. Okay. So when you were going every single day for 21 days, how long were you going each day? 30 minutes. And when you went three days and then a day off, how, how much were you going each day? 40 to 50. Okay. And you felt great. So much better each day. Hmm. That physical, that cognitive distance was everything. Yeah, that's I weird. Felt so I, much I have fresh coming back. I've noticed that with some students, and I've even I've told multiple students this, where like they come in multiple days and they're working on let's just say back flying, right? And they're just having a hard time getting back flying. They've done like three days in a row, and I, I've told people like, "Look, man, here's my recommendation for you: take a few days off. Don't come back tomorrow." Don't yep. wait, come back next week. I can almost okay. guarantee you that it's, maybe it won't click perfectly, but it's going to feel way better. Like it's just going to feel yep. different. You're going to get in and it's going to be easier for some reason. I always attributed it to just your brain has time to process, you know, like I think that's, you relax, think that's you go true. do some other stuff. Or I've yep. also noticed, and this is, I, I don't know if this is interleaving or not, but when I'm working with someone and they're working on, let's just say they're working on in-face carving. I don't know. And they're just having a hard time. They're struggling with it. We do quite a few rotations or whatever. I'm like, okay, stop. Next next time we're going to spend a few minutes or we're going to go back to transition. Something I know they can do. They're yes, maybe that's not, interleaving. They're not perfect at mm -hmm. it, but they're pretty good at it. So we go yep. back to something else, getting their confidence back, relaxing, making them play around and laugh, do some goofy stuff. And yep. then we go back to that carving. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, they just went up a level. What happened? Yep. How did that happen? You know? Yeah. That's interleaving. Okay. Yeah.
Yeah, that's it. That's great. So, Chris, something you just said reminded me of um, a, a book that I read recently. Um, it was called uh, Why We Sleep um, by Matt Walker. Mm. And um, really, really super, super important book. I think probably every every adult should read this book. Um, but one of the th things that's been clearly studied is, according to this book is that um, you need a full night's rest after you learn new tasks in order to move them into your long-term memory, even, even your muscular memory. And without mm. that, um, without that full night of sleep, you lose a ton of the value of the thing that you learn. Um, and so the idea of, uh, for both of you, actually, for what you said about a rest day, um, I mean, I'm assuming that you slept every night, Justin, but, uh, <laughs> potentially better sleep when, when you don't have anything to do the next day and your mind can, can sort of um, knock itself out deeper. Um, Absolutely, hundred feeds right into that idea that that uh, Chris was a proponent of in that book, um, or sorry, Matt was a proponent of in that book. Matt Walker, um, and then I, something you said, um, Justin. When I went through my FITP course, one of my um, trainers was Joe Winters, which <clears throat> most people are not going to remember Joe, but he was uh, one of the guys that established the IBA as a thing and wrote the training manual. Um, and one of the guys in our course expressed what you did. Hey, I'm, I'm feeling frustrated right now. And, and Joe had this quote and it, it just stuck with me over the years. It said, you know, frustration is, is a roadblock to your learning, man. And you got to look at it that way. And the great thing about it is that you put it there and you can take it away. Um, which I think is, is really solid quote. It's really great. Um, it's really, really good. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. What, what about, um, you have anything in the research about, like education and learning in regards to like the word that I think of, I use proprioception, like body mm. awareness. Yeah. You know, because that's awareness. so important in specifically in what we do. And I've noticed people that come from a gym, gymnastics background or people that come mm. from a dancing background, yeah. they tend to be so body aware and they, they mm -hmm. tend to learn things. It, it seems like quicker to me. Um, yes. But is that, in in the research the educational like learning teaching is that a part of anything uh so that is definitely part of it but um i don't have anything that i can you know real confidently sh uh, share with you mm. um i know that uh visualization is huge that's a big aspect in that our brain doesn't know the difference between our visual visualizing and the actual thing which blows my mind that is amazing to me yeah. yeah, it is absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about this pattern of people who have more body awareness doing better. Yeah, yeah, for the, sure. There was a study that I saw, uh, I want to say like a year, year and a half ago. And I mentioned it in a, in a, a YouTube video. Yeah, like a, over a year ago, where they took two groups of kids, and they gave them bean bags it was like a bean bag toss and they had a target for one of the groups the target was stationary it was always at let's just say 12 feet away okay and they had them practice they had this practice regimen that they did for however many days however long right and they practiced with the stationary 12 foot target every time that's all they did the other group they took them and the tar they moved to the target so they would have them practice at three feet, then eight feet, then five feet, then 15 feet, then 12 feet, then 10 feet. You know, it just moved all the time. Same practice regimen as far as frequency and length and all that stuff. 
but they constantly moved the target. Then after however long, I don't know how many days they did the practice, then they brought the two groups together. They set the target at 12 feet, whatever that the group that had the stationary target, it was at the same distance they had always been practicing with. And they had both groups compete. And the group that practiced with the constantly moving target, they like overwhelmingly better than the group with a stationary target. Hmm. Uh, I don't know how that fits into this, but. <laughs> it reminds me of a quote that I always uh, mention in, in my teaching, and that is, students can hit any target that doesn't move and is clear. <laughs> the more hmm. that we can clarify what that target is and making sure that it doesn't move, the better. Wow. And then I guess your example sort of illustrates that point, right? Man, that just made me, that, that gave me some clarity and insight on what I talked about at the beginning with the, the iFly when we were doing that game off the net. I wonder if that's why the game helped me so much is because it clarified the target. All of a sudden, uh, right. I knew exactly how to win. Hmm. Yeah. And so I was like, that's oh. It. Oh, this is what I have to do to win. This is what, okay, I, I, I can, I'm going to figure out, stop telling me things. Now I know how to win. I'm going to try to figure out how to do that. And I oh, can analyze it. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, we'll, some people are hold apart. I'm very much hold apart. I got to see the forest before I dive in the trees. Okay. Other people are the opposite. They can get into the, into the trees and they're fine. They don't need to see that big picture. Hmm. I feel like clarifying a target is a lot, a lot like, um, you know, the bigger picture of what we're doing. And then there's individual things that, that will make up that. But I know that um, I had a friend who had, uh, his son had a little BB gun and uh, he was trying to show off to his grandpa that he could hit a can off a post. And so he put the can on the post, marched back and, and went to aim and, and take a shot. And about that time, the wind, a gust of wind came through, knocked the can off. And obviously he missed. Again, the whole point is if you can see that target and it doesn't move, it doesn't change on you, I believe you can hit it. And another aspect of my own self-study at the tunnel was that um, I really needed to have instructors that believed in me. Oh, man. That believed yeah. that I could do it. It goes back to that efficacy message that's part of fear appeal. I needed to have those instructors not give up on me, not show any indication verbally or non-verbally that I couldn't do it or that they were at their wits end or that, cause I know they were, I absolutely <laughs> know they were. I'm sure when yeah. I showed up every morning for 21 days, they were like, oh, like, oh here comes Justin again. again. What am I going to do with this guy? You know? They're but, like, come uh, on, Wageman, get out of here. Exactly. Wageman just, you're throwing your money away, man. <laughs> Justin, but it wasn't that at all. In fact, I have to give them kudos. You know, it's like not once did I detect that, that they felt like I couldn't do it. Mm. And this relates to another really big concept in education that, that suggests that there are two different kinds of mindsets. There's fixed mindset and growth mindset. Mm. And we as instructors, coaches, mentors, we need to be of the growth mindset. We believe that our students can achieve and can do things. The fixed mindset says, you know what? You were born with a certain skill and a certain talent and all of this ability. 
And no matter what you do, it's fixed. So if you can't do something, you might as well go do something else. Mm. But that growth mindset says, no, with enough, you know, time and energy and focus and purpose and support and resources, you can achieve. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a big growth mindset person. The, my I wife, saw that in my instructors too, at the tunnel. My wife teaches third grade in the school that she's at. They, they talk about that quite a bit. They're very, very big on that growth mindset. And yeah. she uses a phrase that to me is connected with her students. She always tells them struggle comes before growth. Yeah. And so she's constantly reminding her students. I mean, these are third graders, right? So like eight years old and she's um, telling them, you know, struggle. You have to struggle if you want to get better, if you want to grow, if you want to learn, if you want to. And um, she also talks to them about how, how important mistakes are. Now, obviously yeah. we're talking about at school learning. I mean, there's a difference between mistakes in the sky when you can kill someone. Some mistakes are not yeah, for sure. beneficial, but um she she says that with her students that um you know she she likes when they make mistakes because that means they're learning they're trying they're they're growing um and it's, i think it's part of that growth mindset like you have to be okay with mistakes because how absolutely else you, how else do you get better yeah well we found out that or we know that students who have a fixed mindset will avoid taking chances mm. like like trying i'm saying by that mm. They, they'll avoid it because they, they're going to fail. And so they, you know, who wants to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have this fixed mindset. I'm not going to be able to do it. So I'm not even going to try. And, um, and the students with the growth mindset, they'll, they'll try and try again and keep trying. And uh, be so successful. this is super interesting because I was, I've got the chat log up and it's just the one question from Colton saying, I just got my FFI rating any advice from me as a new instructor. And in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, okay, we're going to come back to this. And what I want to say to Colton is, man, you're going to make mistakes. And like, you just got to be okay with it and, yeah. and know that it's going to happen. And you're, it's not because you're a bad instructor. It's because you're maybe a new instructor, but even experienced instructors make mistakes. And, and that, that sometimes isn't visible to like, if this is the Colton that I know it, and he comes over and watches say my wife Steph do an AFF it looks pretty solid you know but what is not visible to Colton is the mountain of mistakes that are piled up behind any good flyer and yes. you just you just got to know that that's part of the process yes mm -hmm. absolutely the comparison piece will kill you and I mm -hmm. confronted that head-on in, in at the tunnel uh there there came a point in time where I actually ignorance is blissful. <laughs> mm -hmm. I actually when I was part of in the rotations and everything sitting, you know, uh, waiting for my turn. I, I wouldn't watch because it was somebody who had been at my level that now was going beyond me. And I, it was oh, it just killed me so much like, oh, I I'm not I, I can't learn that fast. I'm not going to get this. And actually, it helped me to not even see somebody else doing really well. I, I still did the high five and everything afterward, you know. But, uh, yeah, that really helped me because be when you begin to compare, everybody has their personal journey for learning. Yeah. So, Justin, were you in Utah? I was. Okay. Yep. So, th this is incredibly important because when I go to Utah, which is not as much anymore, but we, we were going there for years when Dusty was on the team. Um you know, Hamish has, I'm going to venture a guess, 
at 500 skydives. Yep. And at this point, he's he's probably caught me on tunnel time um, because he flies a lot. But even Hamish of four years ago is way better than me. And I mean, Hamish is mm-hmm. legitimately one of the best flyers in the world. And it's it was like I agree. It, it was difficult sometimes to look at this kid who I know has been in the tunnel for four freaking years and no <laughs> skydives and just watch him fly and it's this beautiful yeah. magical flying yeah. and then he stops on a dime and he's side flying and he's side flying and he's flying on an angle and and holding it and flying on an angle <laughs> and the, like every once in a while i'd be like hamish can you fly bfs with us for a minute just so i can recover my ego <laughs> um because i'm i'm a slight slightly better than him at vfs but i should be way better than him and it, so i just want you to know that this happens at every level and it, and like it, you know I, I i i don't know about like i didn't ever not watch him fly because it was so nice to watch him fly he's such an incredible flyer um but uh that kind of thing where man you 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 do the best you can and you learn and you learn as as much as you can but then every once in a while there's this prodigy that comes along and just goes galloping past you and you're like well i don't know that's in my learning log i i have names and addresses and phone numbers (laughs) of the men of those those prodigies that come Mm -hmm. through and i avoid them like that no Mm-hmm. I, my hat's off to him. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. But again, it's I, I I believe in that growth mindset. You know, yeah, sure. They sure. might they have that great. And here's another thing that counters that, and it goes back to what I mentioned before. One of the greatest motivators that we have is, as humans is to is, is seeing ourselves getting better over time. If you see yourself progressing over time, even if it's just a little bit. I started, here's another thing, I, a lot of this will come out, but with that self-study, I started rewarding myself and celebrating on the days that I made progress because, hmm. because I was so, I was, I was jumping up and down. I would even point to the instructor and say, you need to celebrate for me. And they would do some <laughs> crazy stuff in the tunnel, you know, it was great. I had people come up, this is part of the community, they come up to the glass and be doing this and high five in just any little progress I was celebrating. And it might be just to go and um, I got some really uh, got Marion Berry yogurt or I don't know, <laughs> something that, you know, I couldn't get around here or something. Uh, celebrating those successes. The counter is seeing your tracking your progress and seeing yourself getting better over time. And is that a, you think that's a universal motivator for most people across the board? That's going to be a powerful yeah. motivator. Yeah, it's one of the most powerful. Yeah. yeah. The other is to link effort with outcome. How do you do that? And and, and uh, what that means is like your 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 praise to be effective should really link effort with outcome. Instead of saying just good job, well done, you say very specifically, you did this. Mm-hmm. Your effort in this manner or this regard resulted in this outcome. Hmm. And that's, that's a very powerful, one of the very powerful ways to give feedback. You know, a lot of times it's like, oh, nice job. Well done. Oh, great. You know, whatever. Congratulations. But if you, as an instructor, particularly, right, as a mentor, as a teacher, as an educator, as a coach, if you link effort to outcome for that student, they begin to see that's where the growth mindset comes in, right? Avoiding the fixed mindset, they begin to see that making this effort, see, this is, I did this and it resulted in this. Mm. Give me a, what's a, 
give me a specific example, like with backflying or transitions or barrel rolls or something like what, what would you. Well, um, yeah, like, um, I mean, or J Russ, maybe you can think if you understand what he's saying, I just want to, I want a real practical example to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Well, the, the thing that came to mind, and, and I don't know if this is going to fit specifically because it's very different than what Justin was just talking about. But, um, the other day, uh, we were training and there was an observer ride, which happens sometimes. And, and so they come down to, they come down the ramp and the plane is, is, parked you know but the props are spinning this is a a turn load and um the loader is instructed to not leave the side of that person but in this case the guy just had to move the stairs over to the plane and then come back and and watch people load and escort this person in and so turns to the person and says don't move turns around goes to grab the stairs, the person decided they wanted to say something to the pilot and started walking with purpose towards the prop. Wow. And this was averted. I mean, it, it wasn't super close, but uh, one of our tandem instructors here, Ginger, um, grabbed the, per the woman really quickly and just turned her back around. Um, and she said, oh, I just want to say hi to the pilot. And, um, and obviously that, that could have been an absolute catastrophe. I mean, it has happened in the past, of course, but, but, you know, you try and take steps and, and you know, our, our drop zone manager saw it at the time and all the tandem instructors and it was like, wow. But of, of the tandem instructors who were standing there, it was Ginger that went and no, 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 you're going to come back here. And, um, so when we landed, I gave, I, I was helping catch tandems. It was super windy and we weren't turning. So I, I stood there and, and, uh, helped and Ginger landed and her student, walked away and I gave her a high five and I said, Hey, good job. You know, when we were loading the plane and she said, Oh yeah, thanks. And I said, um, you grabbing that woman probably prevented a fatality. And, uh, and she said, Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. And, and it, the, the message seemed to get clearer and maybe she had forgotten about it. And I was just reminding her, but in, when I put it in those concrete terms of like you did X and Y was the result she, yeah, it, it, she seemed to have a, take a greater effect. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great example. You know, it's about it, it's about again avoiding this idea that every you know your talent, your ability, your natural whatever resulted in it. No, it's because you uh, moved your body in a certain way that that or you and your peace partner did something that result you know resulted yeah. in this outcome that's that's positive. Yeah. Like pointing out the specific thing that they did. Maybe yes. we've been working on that or they just did it on yes. their own or whatever. It doesn't matter. But I was consulting at the Paraclete Tunnel and I remember this has been a few years ago. And I remember a video debrief that was occurring <laughs> and there were and the and the it was a four-way. And I remember the 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 message being you need to do this and uh, and one of the uh, flyers turned to me and said i know i need to do that but i don't know how to do that so then based on that prompting there was more specific instruction about how how to do it and then after an on another video debrief the there was that pointing out of see you use that particular technique or flew that, you know, your body in that particular way that resulted in exactly what 
I was trying to give you for that instruction. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. That, that specific instruction, like we said that it, for them to say, yeah, I know that's what you want me to do. I don't know how. Yeah. Like sometimes that's the most powerful thing a student can say. It's like, but yeah. I don't know how to do it. What do mm -hmm. I do? You know, and to admit that, yeah, that, that made me think of, you know, a couple of things like, I, th I think I've grown, I hope as a coach and an instructor over the, over the years, I, I think I've gotten better. And one thing that I know I used to do and probably still do from time to time is over coaching, like giving too much information, too many mm. things to think about too much stuff so, to try to work on at one time, instead of just like yep. pick one thing, maybe two, <laughs> you know, depending yeah, on the yes. person. And, yeah. um, but what you said about that specific instruction, it made me think about, I fly specifically, like I've noticed with, um, instructors coaching, um, customers is usually like a pretty clear pattern for how we do that, like a methodology for how we do that. And we get trained to do that in a very specific way. That's most of the time I think effective and, and very good, but I've noticed that as instructors move up into like trainer levels or even going from L1 to L2, L3, L4, sometimes the, the instructors that are above them or the trainers, examiners that are above them skip that piece of teaching first and they go straight into, tell me, what do you think? Tell me how you think this should be done. Tell me, write this down for me or outline this for me or explain to me what, how you think you're supposed to teach whatever, whatever the thing is, the leveling up as a trainer or whatever. And, um, I do understand how that's beneficial at some point in the educational process, but it seems like there's a step missing sometimes. And, and I don't, in no way am I disparaging. If I'm just using an example that's at hand. Um, but this idea that almost like it's not okay for me to tell you the information first and then test you on it because I want to just see if you know it. And I'm, I'm like, well, that's, mm -hmm. that's really probably not beneficial at all. It doesn't do anything. It, all it does is show, you know, did I know how to phrase it and verbalize it the way you wanted me to before you told me how to verbalize it? Mm. Um, so is it something I, new that's being taught? No, 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 not necessarily. No, not necessarily. I mean, okay. I, it, more of just kind of something I've noticed with with people. Um, yeah, at the higher levels of coaching, yeah. and instructing, and moving up, it kind of gets to a point where it's like almost like you're expected to know it all mm. before you're officially like taught it. And then once you try to verbalize and say all the stuff, then it's like, okay, well, I see that you don't know it. So now I'm going to teach you. Well, why didn't we just start off with the teaching part? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know, I don't know what made me think of that, but just mm -hmm. as a, as a coach and instructor and educator, like be happy to teach our students, be happy to mm -hmm. share the information with them and, and give it to them in a way that they can digest and learn and understand. Mm -hmm. You know, with the pandemic, I was, uh, I started cooking and baking and, huh. um, yeah, um, I just, I don't know, for a number of reasons. And I really began to draw parallels with teaching and learning. You know how recipes have this step-by-step -step and they always put like amount of time, you know, cook this for this amount of time or do this for this amount of time, beat the eggs for the, whatever. And, um, and it really made me think about um, teaching as well, where 
there are some suggested amounts of time maybe to do different things, whatever, in a lesson or whatever. But then I, I got into look, um, viewing uh, like uh, elite chefs, like the top pros, you know, and they don't, it's not about time at all. It's about their ability to see whatever those ingredients or that, that thing that you're doing. It's less about the time. It's more about your ability to read the thing, right? Read whatever you're making, the product. Well, in education, it is a lot like that. There's a parallel there. We read the student. It's not about applying a standard to every single person, but it's about reading those, in, reading the individual to, to see what they need at that particular moment. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes organizations, in any organization, right, can have certain standards or certain criteria, certain, I don't know, models that everybody has to fit. And um, education is about reading that, that student, mm -hmm. less about hard and fast things, right? And we've already talked about how students progress at different rates. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's very good. So your, your, um, learning journal, what, what did you call it? Your yeah, learning log, learning log, the learning log. When, <laughs> when will you go through it and when can we have you back on so we can hear about it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I would, I would love to share what I, what I discover. I'm, I'm I want to create a little more distance. I want to take a little more time. Um, but I'm going to dive back into it. And I'm hopeful that it's just going to be like I'm reading somebody else's writing, you know, uh, reading somebody else's study. And, and then I'm going to um, I am going to have other people read it as well, because in qualitative research, what we do is we with a narrative, we read it and we code. And then that's how we can begin to, to see the emergence of patterns and, and trends and, mm. and things like that. So um, it'll be a it'll be a bit. But um, I'm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it because there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> it was a great experience, Man, but I'm, wow, it, it, it was I'm very hard. interested to hear what you learned from it. <laughs> yeah. Three months worth of log? Yeah. yeah. Three months logging every day. I don't think I missed any amount. Of, there were days where it might just be a paragraph, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I, I, was, I, I put in who my instructors were, the amount of time I flew. I kept a spreadsheet an Excel spreadsheet of all of that. And then I also noted in that spreadsheet, uh, the different achievements. Right. Mm. And I think I got, I had like 46 skills checked off during that time, but I noted the highlight, you know, the big ones and, and those achievements over time. And I can tell you like how long it took me very specifically, how long it took me to do X. Mm. Um, and then, so I've got the stats and then I've got the, the, so that's the quantitative and then I have the qualitative to go with it. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's just me, you know, one example. Yeah, it's really <laughs> interesting. Well, I mean, th this topic is so enjoyable for me and so interesting just for one, because like I said, I want to be a better coach. I want to learn how to be a better instructor, <clears throat> whether it's just, you know, for myself <clears throat> or for my friends or people I work with or whatever. Um, but I, I've asked a lot of people the question, what do you think makes a good coach? And, um, so this, this conversation, I, I think it's just a fun conversation. Um, and it's something that has practical benefit for all of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what makes a good coach is a love for people, mm. uh, people first, 
I think that connection on that humanity level is what makes a good coach. Mm. Yeah. But that's well, not always the case. That bedside manner isn't always there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, th this has been really good. Um, we've been talking for an hour and 47 minutes, almost two hours. Uh, I love it, man. This is super interesting for me. Jay Russ, is there anything else that, that you got on your mind that you want to, before we, before we shut it down? No, not really. I think that, uh, I mean, this has been great. Yeah. Justin, any, anything else, any, anything we skipped over? No, I appreciate missed? I appreciate the time. <clears throat> yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. You know, Jay Russ was like, Hey man, come on. Gotta, gotta get you on. And I'm glad it finally worked out. Yeah. So thank you. Thank awesome. you for the invite. Yeah. Well, you've done it again. You wasted another perfectly good hour, good two hour hours listening to Chris minutes. and Jay Russ and Justin Wagerin today. Thanks for being right. with us, man. What, what a fun conversation. Um, like we've said before, if you're listening to this, we would love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear your questions, your comments. If you have topics that you want us to discuss or people that you want us to have on questions, <clears throat> like we said before, if we don't know the answer, we'll find out and we'll get the answer. We'll get the person on that does know the answer. And, uh, we're just thankful that, that people are listening and enjoying it. We're getting a lot of positive feedback. And, uh, if you're, if you're in the audience, if you're listening, like, and share and, and, um, share our posts with everybody so we can get this in front of more people and, and help everybody do more and be better. Crave. All right. Thanks you guys. Y'all have a, have a great weekend and uh, blue skies. Thanks guys. Thank you.